This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Buried Truth, where I share cases of killers who kept their deadly secrets very close to home. In this episode, I'll detail the life and crimes of one of the rarest types of criminals, the female serial killer. Dorothea Puente seemed like the gentle grandmotherly type as she rented out rooms in her boarding house to marginalized members of the community, the elderly, the infirm, addicts, and those without homes or families to care for them. Her local community lauded her for caring for those who were often ignored. But in reality, no one knew the real Dorothea Puente and could never have guessed that behind her wholesome image, Puente hid some very dark secrets. This is the final chapter of the series, Buried Truth, the story of the killer landlady, Dorothea Puente. It was an overcast day on November 11, 1988, when officers arrived at 1426 F Street. All was quiet inside as Detective John Cabrera approached the front door of the three-story Victorian early that Friday morning and knocked. An older white-haired woman opened the door still dressed in her house coat. She stood at just over five feet tall and large round glasses framed her pale blue eyes. Standing next to the detective on the porch was Officer Terry Brown from the Sacramento Police Department and Jim Wilson, a federal probation officer. Wilson greeted the woman by name. Good morning, Dorothea, he said. Wilson had been Dorothea Puente's parole officer for several years. The grandmotherly-looking woman standing in the need-as-a-pin parlor was a felon who'd previously served time for theft and forgery. But that's not why the officers were there that morning. They were following up on a missing persons report. 52-year-old Alvaro Montoya's last known place of residence was 1426 F Street, Dorothea's boarding house. Dorothea Puente had been renting out rooms in the house for about three years, mostly to elderly people on fixed incomes. Dorothea's boarding house became a resource for community organizations that sent clients who were more difficult to place. People who were physically disabled or infirm, those living with mental illness, people addicted to alcohol or drugs, or all of the above. Dorothea served as a landlady, house manager, housekeeper, and cook for up to eight tenants at a time. The man in question, Alvaro Montoya, who everyone called Bert, had been placed in the F Street residence since February. Montoya's social worker, Judy Moyes, had been in frequent contact with him, but had stopped hearing from the 52-year-old man weeks earlier. Judy was concerned about her client, who was not only living with schizophrenia, but also had an intellectual disability. The concerned social worker filed the missing persons report with the Sacramento police after getting the runaround from Mrs. Puente. Judy reported that the landlady had first told her that Bert had gone to Mexico, and then later, when he still could not be reached, that a family member had taken him to Utah. But Judy told officers that Bert did not have the intellectual capability to travel on his own and that he had no family, at least none that Judy could ever locate. Montoya had said that he'd lost contact with his family years ago. After the report was filed, 
an officer stopped by Puente's home to make initial inquiries. In early November, the officer spoke with Puente, who repeated the claim that her tenant had been taken out of state by family. The officer spoke with some of the other tenants, who backed up the landlady's story. But on his way out, one of the residents, John Sharp, slipped him a note. She's making me lie to you, the note read. The officer had Sharp meet him around the block a few minutes later. Sharp told him that Dorothea had approached him a couple of days earlier. The police were going to come ask about Bert, she said. I think I'm going to jail, he said the landlady remarked. She then said that when the police came, she wanted him to lie for her. I needed to tell them that I was gone on Thursday and Friday and that you saw Bert on Saturday. Sharp said he agreed because, quote, you don't tell her no or ask any questions if you don't want to have trouble. The truth was, Sharp told the officer, that he hadn't seen Bert Montoya in at least two months. He also claimed that other residents also abruptly disappeared over the past year. Ben Fink was another tenant who had an alcohol problem. He had the room right next door to Sharp's. About four months earlier, Ben had gone on a bender, and he was drunk for at least four days, Sharp said. Dorothea remarked that he'd stolen liquor from her room at that time. On the last night Sharp said he saw Ben, Dorothea had said, I'm going to take Ben upstairs to make him feel better. Sharp said he didn't see Ben the next morning or ever again after that time. But four days later, a, quote, God-awful smell started coming from upstairs. It smelled like death, Sharp said. He said he was familiar with the smell of a decomposing body because he'd once worked for a Kansas City mortuary service. Dorothea had explained it as the sewer backing up. She told him it had gotten onto her carpet and she had shampooed it at least eight times. Sharp said he heard the carpet shampooer running frequently during this time. He also reported that there'd been quite a bit of work done in the backyard of the home since then. When they had hired two men, residents of a nearby halfway house, to dig a four-foot trench and a couple of large holes in the yard. Sharp didn't see who filled them in. He said the same men had returned to pour the concrete slabs. Since the time Ben Fink disappeared, Sharp had been asking his social worker to find him another place to live. There's something wrong in that house. I need to get out of there, Sharp said. These reports are what brought Detectives Cabrera and Brown to visit the landlady. Cabrera now asked permission to look around, and Puente agreed. The home was neat and tidy, and the officers passed a couple of elderly men watching television or napping in chairs, all who appeared to be well taken care of. All the tenants' rooms were located downstairs, and the landlady's quarters located upstairs. The officers were also given permission to enter her bedroom. They noticed that while the tenants' room downstairs were tidy, they were more cheaply furnished. The landlady's quarters contained matching furniture of much higher quality. She had bottles of expensive perfume and cosmetics from high-end department stores lined up neatly on a vanity. Her closet was filled with brightly colored dresses and high-heeled shoes that Detective Cabrera found hard to picture on the matronly woman who stood before him. He also noted a prescription bottle on a bathroom counter. The information on the label identified it as a prescription sedative. The name of the person it had been prescribed to was affixed to the bottle. It read Dorothy Miller. Cabrera asked who that was, and Puente told him she was a relative who'd also resided with her for a short time. The detective now asked about Alvaro Bert Montoya. When had she seen him last, he asked. 
She said he'd been at the home last Saturday or Sunday. Someone had come to pick him up in a larger, dark-colored vehicle, and he'd been gone ever since. Cabrera observed that Puente answered his questions calmly and without any sign of stress or nervousness. This was interesting, he thought, because he knew very well that she was lying to him. John Sharp and Judy Moyes had reported that Montoya had been missing for weeks, if not months. The officers also noted that the house, especially the front parlor, reeked of lemon air freshener, with another scent underlying it, although much fainter. They then stepped into the home's back garden. It was small, only about 300 square feet, with a narrow side yard and an even smaller front yard that measured just a few feet from the building to the front gate. Cabrera noted that there appeared to be several small rose bushes and what could only be a newly planted apricot tree in the backyard. In front of a small shed was a concrete pad that also appeared new. It was very thin, only about two inches in depth, and the detective was sure if he stomped on it, it would crack easily. He wondered what purpose could such a thin layer of concrete serve. Also near the shed, closer to the fence, was an area where the soil appeared to have recently been disturbed. Remembering what John Sharp reported about holes and trenches recently being dug in the yard, Cabrera became curious. He asked Mrs. Puente, who had sweetly told the detective to call me Dorothea, if she wouldn't mind very much if they dug a little in that area. On a hunch, the officers had brought along two shovels. She immediately agreed, even offering to retrieve a third shovel so each of the three men could dig. Beginning in the area near the fence, they dug into the soil which was loose and came up easily. Within just a few minutes, Jim Wilson, the federal parole officer, uncovered something. The men stopped digging and leaned over the hole to take a closer look. They saw what appeared to be some type of cloth or fabric, and also a type of leather object. But there was something obstructing the object, and thinking it was a tree root, Cabrera climbed down into the hole to pull the root away from the object. He tugged on it, but it didn't give easily. Putting more of his strength into it, Cabrera pulled harder, and it loosened and came up. Cabrera looked at what he was now holding in his clenched fist. I could see the joint. It was a bone, he later told a reporter with the Sacramento Bee. Cabrera quickly jumped out of the hole, and after composing himself, he and the other officers used their shovels to move the dirt aside and take a closer look. The piece of leather belonged to a disintegrating dress shoe, and what appeared to be fabric was what little remained of rotting flesh from a leg bone. Dorothea Puente had gone back inside to her kitchen, where she observed the officers from the window. The detective now called her outside into the hole, where he revealed what they'd found, watching closely for her reaction. She clapped both hands to the sides of her face, like she was Kevin McAllister in Home Alone, and exclaimed, I don't know what to tell you. The detectives first thought that the nearly skeletonized corpse they'd just discovered could not be that of Alvaro Montoya. The man had been missing for at most three months. This body had to have been buried much longer than that due to its state of decomposition. But if it wasn't Montoya, who was it? Cabrera asked the landlady to accompany him to the police headquarters to answer a few questions. Once at the station, Cabrera sat across from the white-haired lady in a tiny interrogation room. Before leaving her house, she had asked to change her clothes 
and was now wearing a navy blue polka dotted dress adorned with tulip sleeves giving her a bit of flair. She held a brown leather purse in her lap and fiddled with a handkerchief, at times folding it repeatedly or twisting it while answering the detective's questions. Other than that, Dorothea Puente seemed completely calm and unrattled upon learning that a body had been buried in her back garden. In a calm but firm voice, the detective began inquiring about how long she lived at 1426 F Street. She readily admitted that she moved in around 1978, but had been arrested and incarcerated from May of 1982 to September 9th of 1985. Upon her release, she'd returned to the residence and had lived there ever since. By now, Cabrera was aware of Puente's criminal record and had begun taking apart the statements she'd made earlier regarding Mr. Montoya. He leaned forward, looking the landlady in the eye and in a calm but firm voice, said her story just didn't make sense. What am I to think? What am I to think after hearing this a year and following along, following along, watching, waiting, and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, I dig up a body in your backyard. I don't know anything. I didn't even see the body. It may be. And you may be. That may be true. That's why I'm asking you. I'm appealing to you. Dorothea. Sir, I don't know anything. I'm going to ask you right now again. Are there any other bodies? No. In your backyard? No, sir. I didn't even know that one was there. If I had, I would have said, no, don't search the yard. You know? But I had nothing to hide. I don't want to go back to prison. Well, I realize that. I'm an old lady. I realize that, I'm trying to get off parole. I'm trying to get my life together. But Dorothea, all the indications, everything doesn't make any sense is what I'm trying to tell you. I'm appealing to you. I'm appealing to you, Dorothea. That's what I'm saying is nothing makes sense. Nothing. Everything you said was inconsistent with what somebody else said. When you sat in there, it was like sticking your foot in your own mouth. I couldn't believe you were telling me that. Because I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. Something is wrong here. And then when I talked to Mr. McCauley, he couldn't even substantiate what you were saying. More than one person said Montoya had been missing for several months. Yet she insisted that he was at the residence until Sunday, less than a week ago. She continued to insist that this was the truth. Then Cabrera asked about another tenant, a man named Benjamin Fink. John Sharp had reported that he also had gone missing around the same time as Mr. Montoya. Dorothea claimed that she'd evicted Ben Fink for drinking and causing problems in the home. No one had seen Mr. Fink either, Cabrera stressed, and he was well known in the area. Fink had a problem with alcohol and was a frequent fixture at local bars when he wasn't sitting in jail for public intoxication or some other charge. Yet no one had seen hide nor hair of either of these two men, and the last place they were both seen was at her home. And now, he said pointedly, they'd found a body in her backyard. What was her answer to that? Sir, I have not killed anyone, Puente calmly stated. Dorothea, I know if we dig, we're going to find more. I know that. I know that. Well, I didn't put them there. I couldn't drag a body any place. I believe that. But I believe there's somebody else involved here. Somebody else. Because here's people that are still getting checks and they haven't even been seen. Hiding her hair, Dorothea. (laughs) You have to look at it from my view, dear. I look at it and I think, nothing makes sense. This is absolutely Sir, I have not killed anybody. Maybe you didn't kill anybody. That may be true. 
But maybe you know what really happened. No, I don't. I think you know about Mr. Montoya. Because Mr. Montoya is not in Costa Rica. Mr. Montoya He's is not, not in Costa Utah. Rica. He's, where is he? He's in that backyard, I believe, Dorothea. He is in that backyard, or he's been disposed of some other manner. Not by me. Then by Mr. McCauley. I don't Dorothea, I'm asking you. I don't I'm know. Asking you, I don't know. I don't know. I want to know what you know. It. I want to know what you know. You know, you are the leader of the house. You have the background. Okay? You've been there before. You know what I'm talking about. I have never killed anybody in my life. Then who did kill somebody? Mr. McCauley? Tell I me, don't know. Tell, tell me now. I don't know. Tell me now. I don't know. Cabrera continued questioning her for another half hour, but she remained calm and claimed to know nothing. When it was clear that he would not get more information out of her, Dorothea Puente was given a ride home. They did not yet have enough evidence about who they'd found buried in her yard, nor how or when they had died, to hold her in custody. But before she was let go, she was informed that a team would be sent back out to 1426 F Street first thing in the morning to excavate the rest of her yard. A uniformed officer was assigned to park in front of Dorothea's house overnight to keep watch. What Detective John Cabrera had already discovered about Dorothea Puente had been true all her life. She was a woman of contradictions. On the one hand, she appeared to be a gentle grandmotherly woman who took in and cared for people whose society ignored. The poor who were challenged with a variety of difficult issues, including mental illness, alcoholism, and physical and mental disabilities. She was often generous, purchasing clothing and other items her tenants needed, and making sure they were well-fed with meals she cooked herself. She was a devoted Catholic, attending Mass daily, and was insistent on keeping a clean and sober home, strictly forbidding boarders from bringing alcohol or drugs into her house. On the other hand, she had a long criminal history of forgery, theft, and even prostitution in her younger days. And according to others, she was a regular at neighborhood bars and could drink men twice her size under the table. She favored vodka and juice drinks like screwdrivers and greyhounds, and kept a well-stocked bar for herself in her upstairs quarters under lock and key. So who was Dorothea Puente really? The gentle lady and upstanding citizen, or the hard-drinking ex-felon? To find out, we need to start at the beginning of her life story. Dorothea Helen Gray was born in Redlands, California in 1929. She was the sixth of seven children born to Jesse and Trudy Gray. Dorothea's parents were both heavy drinkers who fought frequently and often in front of their children. Dorothea lost her father when he succumbed to tuberculosis in 1937, when she was only eight years old. Her mother was both verbally and physically abusive to her children, that is, when she wasn't abandoning them altogether. Her alcoholism and neglect resulted in losing custody of them not long after their father died. The following year, Trudy was killed in a motorcycle accident. Dorothea spent the ages of 9 through 16 bouncing between relatives and foster homes from Napa to Los Angeles. Family members would later testify that Dorothea was sexually molested when she was temporarily placed in an orphanage. At the age of 16, Dorothea ran away and landed in Olympia, Washington. There she rented a motel room with another runaway, and they began trading sex for money in order to make a living. It was reported later that Dorothea's mother was also involved in prostitution. 
Dorothea began using the first of what would be many aliases throughout her life, calling herself Sherry, or Sherryall A. Rassili. Dorothea was a pretty petite blonde with light blue eyes, and she soon found she liked the money and attention she received as a sex worker. It would be said that early on, she had a taste for the finer things in life, and always found a way to obtain the things she coveted, like fine clothes, expensive perfume, and especially a healthy bank account. Money became the antidote for the anxiety she'd come to associate with the poverty and insecurity she had experienced early in her childhood. In 1945, Dorothea met Fred McFall, a 22-year-old soldier who'd just returned from serving in World War II. She lied about her age and listed her name as Sherry Rassili on the marriage license. This would become another pattern of behavior for Dorothea, lying and telling tall tales to make herself seem more exotic or important. Throughout her life, Dorothea shared many unbelievable and, frankly, outrageous stories that were easily debunked. She claimed she had lived through the bombing of Hiroshima and the Bataan Death March during World War II, even though at that time she had never been outside of the borders of California, and she'd been only 13 years old at the time of the latter. McFall and his teen bride were married in Reno, Nevada, and began their life as a couple in that state. In 1946, Dorothea gave birth to their first child, a daughter. A year later, a second daughter was born. But much like her own mother, Dorothea had no love of motherhood. She instead preferred to hang out at bars meeting men who'd buy her drinks and sometimes clothing and other gifts. Soon after her second child was born, she left her family and headed for Los Angeles. One of the couple's daughters went to live with McFall's mother in Sacramento. The other was later placed for adoption. When Dorothea finally returned months later, she was pregnant. She lost the baby soon after, but McFall was done with his immature and flighty wife and left her. Decades later, when the bride of his youth became infamous, Fred McFall would be interviewed by reporters. Of Dorothea, he told the Sacramento Bee, she was a good-looking female. She knew how to make a buck when she wanted to. About this period in her life, Dorothea later came up with an alternate story. When interviewed by journalist Martin Coos in 2009, Quinte said she was approached by a talent scout in 1948 while shopping in San Francisco. On the spot, he invited the 19-year-old to audition for the Radio City Rockettes in New York City. She flew to the Big Apple and was hired to perform with the Rockettes, although she had no training as a dancer or entertainer. According to Puente, she spent Thursday through Sunday each week performing at Radio City Music Hall and then flew back to San Francisco where she worked as a cook in a seafood restaurant from Monday through Saturday. She said her legal name at this time was Dorothea McFall, but she used the stage name Sharon Nayarda. Puente's second husband would later say that she used this persona during their marriage when she also claimed to be Middle Eastern and Muslim. But Puente says her career as a dancer came to an abrupt end in 1957 when another dancer bumped into her on stage and they both fell into the orchestra pit. Her leg was broken, and the other dancer was paralyzed. Martin Coos researched the story. The Rockettes Alumni Association reported having no record of either Sharon Nayarda or a Dorothea McFall performing with the company, nor of two dancers suffering such an accident. Dorothea insisted the story was true, and also added that during her time as a Rockette, that she had met Senator John F. Kennedy and also actress Rita Hayworth. She and Rita Hayworth became good friends, according to Dorothea. While there's no documented evidence of her days as a dancer, 
there is for her first criminal conviction. In 1948, Puente was arrested in Riverside County for purchasing jewelry and clothing using forged checks. She pled guilty and served four months in jail. When released, she was ordered to serve three years probation. Instead, she fled the jurisdiction and returned to Northern California. In 1952, 22-year-old Dorothea met and married Axel Bren Johansson, a merchant seaman. The couple moved to Sacramento, but because of his job, Johansson was often away at sea. Dorothea used his absence to indulge in her favorite pastimes, drinking, gambling, and having affairs with other men. Johansson would return home to find their bank account cleaned out and his wife's closet full of new clothes, shoes, and jewelry. What little money was left, Dorothea often lost gambling. The couple would have terrific fights over money and infidelity. In 1960, Puente was busted by the Vice Squad for propositioning an undercover cop while working in a brothel on Fulton Street, which was masquerading as a bookkeeping business. She served 90 days in the county jail on that charge. She would later claim she'd only been in the wrong place at the wrong time, explaining that she was there visiting a friend when it was raided, and she had been innocently caught up in the melee. Her drinking was out of control by 1960, according to her husband. She was also experiencing deep periods of depression and made several attempts to end her own life. Johansson decided his wife needed professional help and had Dorothy committed to the DeWitt State Hospital, where she was placed under psychiatric care. Doctors would classify her as a pathological liar with an unstable personality. She was put on antipsychotic medication. Puente would later say that Axel Johansson was her favorite of the four men she'd wed. Their marriage lasted the longest, spanning 14 years before they were divorced in 1966, and she would always remember him fondly. He sent her Christmas cards while she was in prison, and decades after their divorce, Puente remarked that he was a good-hearted, very kind man. Dorothea Puente's third and fourth marriages were much shorter affairs. In 1968, at the age of 38, she married 21-year-old Roberto Jose Puente, a Mexican national. He had reportedly married the much older woman, in large part, to obtain American citizenship, though others said they had a torrid affair for a short time before tying the knot. In any case, the relationship ended after less than two years, and Puente filed for divorce, citing domestic violence as the reason. In 1969, she attempted to serve him divorce papers, but he had returned to Mexico. It appears that she and Puente were not legally divorced when she met and married her fourth and final husband. In the mid-1970s, she married Pedro Ángel Montalvo. They would split up just a few months later. Montalvo would later comment about his time with Dorothea. She wanted new pantyhose every day. She thought she was rich. By this time, Puente had perhaps found a calling, but it was also a way to earn a consistent living. She began a new venture in 1975 leasing a home, and then renting out rooms at a profit. The first of these was located at 21st and F Street in Midtown Sacramento, not far from the state capitol and the Hall of Justice. Prior to this venture, Puente ran an unauthorized alcohol rehab facility she called the Samaritans. But this business folded after she'd accrued thousands of dollars in debt. It's interesting to consider that she may have been motivated, at least initially, to help those who struggled with alcohol dependence because of the negative effects her own mother's drinking had on her early life? Or did she hope it would be a way to address her own problem with alcohol? Whatever the reason, 
Puente would spend the rest of her life outside of prison walls, providing room and board to people who struggled with addictions to alcohol and other substances. Could the pain of her own past have caused her to later turn on these vulnerable people in her care? Or was her motivation simply greed, as many believe? I'll detail the next chapter in Dorothea Puente's life and how it took a very dark turn right after this word from our sponsors. Dorothea Puente opened her first boarding house, which could accommodate up to 24 boarders, in the mid-1970s, and it quickly became profitable. Tenants paid $350 a month for a private room plus two meals per day, cooked by Puente, who, by the way, was a very good cook. She was especially praised for her homemade tamales. Just a quick side note here to clear up one point that has been incorrectly reported about Dorothea Puente over the years. She was not Latina, or Hispanic to use another term, and was not born in Mexico. As was her habit, Dorothea made many false assertions about her identity and claimed to be born in Mexico, but her birth records clearly state Redlands, California as her birthplace. Nor were her parents or grandparents Hispanic. Dorothea most often went by the last name Puente, the name of her third husband. Other times, she used the surname Montalvo, her fourth husband's name. Some have assumed she was Hispanic because of this. The Latino community in Sacramento would come to highly regard her, and she embraced this by leaning into the lie that she was Mexican. She even accepted awards and accolades from the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and other Latino organizations, whom she gave charitable donations to after becoming a successful business owner. Living and working among Spanish speakers, Dorothea also spoke decent Spanish, which helped perpetuate this myth. Puente's boarding house was profitable right away, and she enjoyed being a respected and valued member of the community. She established herself as a resource as well as a donor for social issues like homelessness, drug and alcohol dependence, and mental illness. She also became politically active, donating to campaigns. Dorothea was photographed at events for both California Governor Jerry Brown and later Governor George Duke Majin. But everyone to embellish in order to appear more important, when they also claimed to have had dinner with actor Clint Eastwood, who was a well-known supporter of several California political campaigns. He also served as mayor of the small coastal town of Carmel, California, in the mid-1980s. Additionally, Puente claimed to have been a close friend of Jane Wyman, the first wife of California Governor Ronald Reagan, who later served as the 40th President of the United States. While I'm at it, I might as well tell you about the other fabrications Puente would include in her life story. She claimed that she had competed in the LPGA, or the Ladies Professional Golf Association Tour, in the 1950s. Another story she liked to tell was about being a contestant on the television game show which ran from 1954 to 1956 called Feather Your Nest. Dorothea claimed she had won the $10,000 grand prize. Out of curiosity, I looked this up, and there are a couple of problems with the story. First of all, cash prizes weren't awarded on Feather Your Nest. The only prizes were home furnishings. Second, contestants on the show were always married couples who appeared together. In the mid-1950s, Dorothea was still married to Axel Johansson, but she didn't mention appearing on the show with her husband. Also, in a weird coincidence, the name of the announcer on Feather Your Nest was Randy Kraft. The only well-known person by that name I'm aware of is, you guessed it, another serial killer. But I digress. By the late 1970s, 
Dorothea Puente had transformed herself from an abandoned and abused child who resorted to sex work and petty theft to survive, to a successful entrepreneur who was well-regarded and respected in her community. She had finally become the important person she always aspired to be. All may have ended well if Dorothea had been satisfied with these achievements, but it still was not enough for her. To supplement her income, she began forging her tenant's signatures on their Social Security, Disability, and other benefits checks mailed to her address and deposited them in her own bank account. In 1978, these thefts were discovered, and Dorothea was charged and convicted of illegally cashing over 30 stolen state and federal checks. She was given five years probation and ordered to pay back over $4,000 in restitution to her victims. In addition, she was prohibited from opening up another boarding house. So instead, she reinvented herself once more. While before, Dorothea took pains to dress and present herself as younger than her actual age, now, only in her late 40s, she altered her appearance to look older and more matronly. She began speaking in a soft, shaky voice. She started wearing large glasses and more conservative clothing and let her hair go gray. She took jobs as an in-home caregiver and started working a new scam. The people she was hired to take care of were elderly and infirm, and Dorothea used their vulnerability to her advantage. She drugged three female patients in order to steal checks, cash, and valuables from their homes. When she was off duty, Dorothea was a regular at downtown bars. At these establishments, she wore her most attractive outfits and chatted up elderly men. If they didn't become intoxicated enough after a few drinks, she would slip them a mickey or a sedative into their drink. Dorothea would then pilfer their wallets and disappear before they knew that they'd been robbed. In the summer of 1982, she began flirting with a 74-year-old man named Malcolm McKenzie at a bar called the Zebra Club. She laced his drink with a sedative and then offered to go home with him. On the way to his apartment, McKenzie began to feel groggy. Soon after they arrived, he fell onto the floor, still conscious but unable to stand. Lying helpless, he watched Dorothea go through his home and steal checks and cash. Before leaving, she slipped a diamond ring off his hand. After talking to others who'd also had an encounter with her around town, Mackenzie discovered Dorothea's real name and place of residence. She was arrested and charged with robbing Mackenzie and two other men. Puente was convicted and sentenced to five years in the California Institution for Women in Corona, California, also known as Frontera Prison. When one man learned of Puente's arrest and conviction, he contacted the Sacramento PD to urge them to investigate Dorothea Puente for additional crimes and not just theft, but murder. William Clausen's mother, Ruth Monroe, went into business with Dorothea Puente in late 1981. The women leased a restaurant space connected to a midtown tavern. Together, they were to open and run the diner and split the profits, but the venture never really took off. The following spring, Ruth's husband was hospitalized with terminal cancer. Puente offered to take her into her home, and Ruth agreed, moving in with Puente in April of 1982. Within two weeks, the 61-year-old fell ill. When her son William visited her at her new residence, he found his mother weak and pale. She had difficulty even standing. Ruth was sipping a glass of liqueur, which was out of character for her as she rarely drank alcohol. When her son asked about it, Ruth explained that the booze had been given to her by Dorothea, who said it would help to calm her. Dorothea by this time had convinced several people, including Ruth's family, that she was a licensed nurse. 
Just four days later, Ruth Monroe died. Her death had been the result of an overdose of codeine and acimidophen, according to the coroner. Since Monroe died in Dorothea's home, Dorothea was questioned by police. She explained that her friend had been very depressed about her husband's terminal illness and had expressed wanting to die. With this information, Ruth's death was ruled a suicide. William Clausen was outraged and insisted that his mother had not been suicidal. Ruth's family suspected Dorothea of having poisoned her. Their suspicions rose after discovering that thousands of dollars belonging to Ruth had been drained from the joint business account she had opened with Puente. After Dorothea was convicted of drugging and robbing people, Monroe's family, convinced that Ruth had also been a victim of hers, insisted that police reinvestigate her death. They did, but investigators believed that Ruth Monroe's death had been correctly ruled a suicide. William Clausen would later say, If Dorothea Puente had been held accountable for murdering my mother, then maybe there wouldn't have been any other victims. And tragically, there would soon be many, many more victims. In 1982, Dorothea Puente was sentenced to serve five years in prison for a string of robberies in which she first drugged her victims. While she was serving her time, she received a letter from Everson Gilmuth, a 77-year-old retiree from Oregon, and they began corresponding regularly. In September 1985, Puente was released from prison after serving three years. Waiting for her as she emerged from behind the prison gates was her prison pen pal and now her new love interest, Everson Gilmuth. Puente had had almost two years shaved off her sentence, but more time was tacked onto the parole she'd been ordered to serve for the federal conviction from 1978. Had she stayed out of trouble, it would have ended in 1983. Now it was extended until 1990. Before being sent to prison, Dorothea was renting a room in an eight-room Victorian located at 1426 F Street. After her release, she returned to the residence. The owner and his family lived downstairs, and Dorothea rented the second floor from him for $300. In June of 1986, the owner moved out, purchasing another home for himself, his wife, and his four children in a more family-oriented part of town. Dorothea asked him if she could take over the entire house. She offered to pay $600, and he agreed. Everson Gilmuth moved in with her. One other woman, a family member of the owner, was still living downstairs, but moved out by early the following year. By February of 1987, Dorothea had taken possession of the whole residence. In letters that she and Everson had written to each other while Dorothea was in prison, they began to plan a future together after her release. They talked about getting married, and in anticipation of this, Everson opened up a joint bank account with his bride-to-be after moving into the F Street house. Three months later, he disappeared. Contrary to what she had told the owner, Dorothea soon began renting out rooms to other people downstairs. One person who became a tenant was a handyman named Ismael Flores. Dorothea paid Flores to do odd jobs for her around the house. In November, she asked him to build a large wooden box she said she needed to store some books and other items. She gave specific instructions on how she wanted it built, instructing Flores that it should measure 6 feet by 3 feet by 2 feet. When he completed the job, Dorothea paid him $200, and also gifted him a red Ford truck she said it belonged to a boyfriend who, quote, no longer needed it. The truck was registered to Everson Gilmuth. Some have speculated that Flores was more than a handyman and tenant to be gifted such a valuable item. Dorothy asked Flores for another favor. 
She asked him to load the box, now nailed shut, onto the truck and take her to a storage unit to drop it off. They drove west, away from the downtown area on the Garden Highway for a few miles before the road jogged north following the curve of the Sacramento River. All of a sudden, Dorothea told the handyman that she had changed her mind. Most of the items in the box were junk and not worth keeping anyway, she said. She asked him to pull over near the riverbank, where it appeared that items the people didn't want to pay to take to the landfill had been dumped. The muddy bank was littered with broken furniture, old appliances, tires, and bags of garbage. She asked Flores to back the truck to the water's edge and drop the box there. He did so, and they drove back to F Street. Almost a month later, on New Year's Day, two men fishing in the Sacramento River saw a large wooden box they described as, quote, looking like a coffin, or at least about the same size. It was only half submerged in the murky water, and as they approached, the men smelled a very foul odor coming from it. They called the police. Inside, a badly decomposed body was discovered. It was that of an elderly man dressed only in underwear. The body was wrapped in a white bedsheet, which was taped closed with electrical tape. The body was stored in the county morgue, where it remained unidentified for three years. It wasn't until bodies were dug up in the backyard of Dorothea Puente's boarding house that the victim found in the box would be identified as Everson Gilmuth. Gilmuth had believed that Puente loved him and was going to marry him. But instead, she disposed of the man like trash and kept cashing his Social Security checks. When his family called her to inquire about him, Puente claimed that Everson had been ill, so had been unable to contact them. But she told them not to worry. She was nursing him back to health, and he was, quote, feeling much better now. If I had to guess, I would say that Dorothea Puente learned some things after being caught stealing from her tenants and being sent to prison. It must have occurred to her that she could only get away with her crimes if she left no witnesses behind. She may have planned to do away with Everson Gilmuth even before leaving prison. She had convinced him to move away from his hometown and live with her in Sacramento. A victim without family or friends nearby to ask questions would be easier to make disappear. The timing would suggest that his fate was sealed as soon as Dorothea was able to convince him to give her access to his money. He disappeared soon afterward. Because Gilmuth remained unidentified for so long after his body was discovered, this may have convinced her to continue choosing victims from those whose disappearances would go largely unnoticed. In less than two years, seven more people would disappear from Dorothea Puente's boarding house at 1426 F Street. In August of 1986, 77-year-old Betty Palmer, who not long before had begun renting a downstairs room, went missing after allegedly leaving for a doctor's appointment. Several weeks later, Dorothea began using an identification card listing Betty's name, but Dorothea's photo. Dorothea used this doctored ID card to collect Betty Palmer's benefit checks. In February of 1987, 78-year-old Leona Carpenter was referred to the F Street boarding house after being discharged from the hospital. Leona had no family who could care for her, and Dorothea had become known as a kind-hearted landlady who was willing to take in individuals who were hard to place. She also had no problem renting to those who were on a very fixed income, retirees, people with disabilities, or those who were surviving on government assistance. Social workers from state and city programs began referring their clients to Dorothea's boarding house and sharing her as a resource with other agencies. 
Leona Carpenter was only living at Dorothea's for about two weeks before she also went missing. Leona would be the first victim unearthed in Puente's backyard. In July of that same year, 62-year-old James Gallup told his physician that he'd found a place to live after his upcoming surgery. Gallup had suffered a heart attack and was being treated for a benign brain tumor. After his release from the hospital, Gallup said he would be moving into a boarding house on F Street. The last time Gallup was seen alive was at a doctor's appointment on July 21st. Just four months later, in October 1987, two women moved into Puente's house after being referred by a veterans organization. Vera Faye Martin, 62, and Dorothy Miller, 64, both arrived on October 2nd. Dorothy Miller, who was being treated for an alcohol addiction, was last seen on October 23rd at a Veterans Administration clinic. Vera Martin would vanish just a day or two after Dorothy. Almost a year after Dorothy was last seen, Dorothea would use the missing woman's benefits card at the VA clinic in an attempt to obtain a prescription for Dalmane, a benzodiazepine, and a powerful sedative. The following spring, two men who were both well-known in the downtown area were referred to Dorothea and took rooms in her home. On February 3, 1988, Alvaro Bert Montoya, 51, recently released from a detox center, was brought to the boarding house. Bert Montoya, who'd been living with schizophrenia for many years, was also intellectually disabled. Montoya was a familiar figure in downtown Sacramento. He was often seen wandering in the area, talking to the voices in his head that had been his constant companions for decades. His first language was Spanish, and he needed a lot of guidance to successfully navigate daily life. His social worker had recorded his intellectual ability at about grade school level. Puente seemed like the perfect landlady for Bert. She spoke Spanish and was known to mother her residents, making sure they ate hot home-cooked meals and took care with their hygiene. Puente was a stickler for cleanliness, insisting that her tenants bathe regularly and wear clean clothing. She had even provided some of her tenants with new clothes when theirs were either too worn, tattered, or could not be cleaned to her satisfaction. Judy Moyes, an outreach counselor with Volunteers of America, was referred to Puente by another social worker. Judy cared for her clients, and she took special care of Bert Montoya, who had to navigate so many challenges. She personally visited Dorothea's home before placing Montoya there. She was impressed with the petite grandmotherly woman who kept her home spotless and seemed to have a good rapport with her tenants. Bert seemed to settle in well at Dorothea's home at the beginning. He had even begun calling his landlady Mama. He lived there for several months, apparently without problems. But later, Bert told counselors at the detox center where he'd been previously placed that he didn't want to live at the F Street house anymore. The counselor knew that Bert sometimes became agitated when his routine was altered. He asked to explain what he didn't like. Bert told him that Dorothea gave him medicine he didn't want to take. The counselor assumed that Bert was referring to the antipsychotic medication prescribed to him, which had always been a struggle to get him to take consistently. The counselor encouraged him to give the place another try and to come see him again if he continued to have a problem. Ben Fink was the second man to arrive to F Street in the spring. Fink was 55 years old and had a serious alcohol addiction. He was also well-known to police in Midtown and downtown Sacramento, as he cashed his disability check at the beginning of the month and spent the next several days drinking in neighborhood dive bars until his money ran out or the cops were called, whichever came first. 
Ben Fink became belligerent and angry when under the influence of alcohol, and if he wasn't beat up by another bar patron for his behavior, he was often arrested for being drunk in public and spent a few days in jail, before beginning his pattern all over again the next month. On March 9th, Ben Fink moved into Dorothea's. Quente told him, as she did all her tenants, that under no circumstances was he allowed to bring alcohol into her home. As a result, Puente would later say, Fink would go out drinking for long stretches at a time. Sometime around April or May, Fink disappeared. The summer months of 1988 were relatively quiet on F Street. But there was one problem, according to Dorothea's neighbors. As the days grew hotter, they began to detect a foul smell coming from Puente's property. Sacramento summers can be blazingly hot, reaching over 95 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 to 38 degrees Celsius, during the hottest part of the day. The stench became so bad that neighbors took to turning off their air conditioning units, preferring to swelter in their homes rather than have the terrible smell sucked in from outside. When approached about the smell, Dorothea apologized, giving several explanations. Her sewer had backed up, she told one person. There were dead rats under the house, she explained to another and others were told that the smell was the result of the fish emulsion that was in the fertilizer she used in her garden. No one was reported missing that summer. Perhaps the landlady got nervous after so much attention was directed her way because of the odor emanating from her yard. Who knows? But for whatever reason, nothing occurred that created suspicion until the fall. Judy Moyes had been in frequent contact with Bert Montoya after he moved into Puente's home. Before that time, she could often find him walking in the downtown area. Even then, she made sure to find him and check in with Bert to ensure that he was safe or to find out if he needed anything. But around September, Judy lost contact with Bert. He hadn't contacted her in a while, and she became concerned when she realized she'd not seen him for more than a few weeks. She left several messages for Dorothea Puente but her calls were not returned. Finally, Judy left a message informing the landlady that if she didn't hear from her soon, she was going to pay a visit to F Street to look for Bert. Dorothea returned the call. According to Judy, the landlady was evasive at first, not answering her questions directly. When Judy kept pressing her for information about Bert, Quente told her that he had left on a trip to Mexico. Judy was skeptical. Gone on a trip with who? To where exactly? The landlady said she didn't have specifics, but believed he'd be back in a week or two. In October 1988, Judy inquired about Bert again. Quinte now claimed that Bert had since returned to Sacramento, but had recently moved out of state. Now Judy was sure she was being lied to. When she asked how and when Bert had left, Quinte told her that one of his family members had come, packed Bert's things, and they'd left for Utah. Judy knew that Bert had no family members he was in touch with, nor had he ever mentioned being acquainted with anyone in Utah. Just days later, in early November, Judy Moyes filed a missing persons report on Alvaro Bert Montoya with the Sacramento Police Department. The morning after officers discovered human remains buried in Dorothea Puente's backyard on F Street, they returned with a team to unearth the body and to preserve any evidence to help determine who it was or how they had died. As of yet, they didn't have any evidence to prove a crime had been committed, other than possibly the unlawful disposal of a corpse. 
a team including forensic anthropologists, police officers, representatives from the coroner's office, and county work crews with digging equipment, accompanied homicide detectives Terry Brown and John Cabrera to 1426 F Street. Detectives had interviewed the owner of the house, who gave them permission to dig up the yard after they informed him of the discovery of the body. Anthropologists began in the area where the remains were uncovered the previous day and carefully dug to reveal more of the remains. Within minutes, they found a body that was almost skeletonized. After it was analyzed, they determined that the remains belonged to a small female. The skull was still partially covered in gray hair. Later, the body would be identified as 78-year-old Leona Carpenter, who'd gone missing in February 1987, more than a year and a half earlier. The digging crew next moved to an area in the yard that was recently covered over by a thin sheet of concrete. As workers began drilling through the concrete, curious neighbors began arriving and gathered across the street to watch the activity at the Puente House. Before long, the crowd grew to a sizable number. Dorothea Puente stayed inside, watching the activity in her yard through her kitchen window. Soon after the drilling began, she asked to speak to Detective Cabrera. Dorothea said the crowds gathering outside were making her anxious. She had a bad heart, she explained, and wanted to get away for a bit. She asked, am I under arrest? Cabrera told her that she was not, so she requested permission to walk two blocks over to the Clarion Hotel to have coffee with her nephew who worked there. She said her tenant, John McCauley, would accompany her there and back. Cabrera didn't think it was a good idea, but told her to hold tight a second. He radioed his captain to ask him what he wanted to do. Cabrera was told that as of yet, they could not arrest Puente, so could not legally hold her or stop her from leaving the house. Cabrera told her she could go, but he would escort her part of the way to make sure of where she was headed. It had begun to rain, so Dorothea donned a red raincoat, purple shoes, and carried a pink umbrella as she left the house for the short walk to the hotel. John McCauley walked alongside her, with Sergeant Cabrera following a few paces behind. Puente was holding a large maroon-colored handbag as she left the house. The detective watched Puente and McCauley enter the hotel and then headed back to the dig site. Twenty minutes later, a second body was discovered, and this one appeared to have been buried much more recently. Police rushed to the hotel to arrest Puente, but by the time they arrived, she had fled. Dorothea Puente and her tenant, John McCauley, had walked into the Clarion Hotel lobby and out a side door, where they caught a cab to Tiny's Lounge, a bar located in West Sacramento. Puente drank three or four screwdrivers while McCauley opted for draft beer. Dorothea left the bar and took a cab to Stockton, a town located about 50 miles south. She didn't worry about the cost of the long cab ride, as her large handbag was stuffed with over $3,000 in cash. When she reached Stockton, she purchased a bus ticket bound for Los Angeles. Back at 1426 F Street, bodies continued to be dug out of the ground. Over the next several hours, five more bodies would be discovered, bringing the total number to seven. The sheer number of victims unearthed in the tiny yard would astound detectives. In total, the area measured just 300 square feet. Three of the bodies were found under a slab of concrete that the crew broke up and removed. Another was found under a gazebo in the narrow side yard. 
All the victims would be identified as Dorothea Puente's former tenants, Leona Carpenter, Dorothy Miller, Vera Martin, Ben Fink, James Gallup, Betty Palmer, and Bert Montoya. All the bodies were found wrapped similarly in bedsheets that matched sets found inside Puente's house. The bodies were then wrapped again in plastic and duct tape. Leona Carpenter was the first victim discovered in the backyard. She had been buried near the back fence. Dorothy Miller was found with her arms taped to her chest with duct tape. Ben Fink was found dressed only in boxer shorts. Vera Martin had been buried with her wristwatch on her arm. It was still ticking. Betty Palmer, one of the first to move into the boarding house after Dorothea began renting rooms, had been dismembered. She was missing her head, hands, and the bottom portions of her legs. Her body was still clad in a nightgown. She was buried below a statue of St. Francis of Assisi, just a few feet from the front sidewalk. Alvaro Bert Montoya, whose disappearance had been the catalyst for revealing a serial killer, was found buried under an apricot tree that his landlady had recently planted in the side yard. A widespread manhunt began for suspected serial killer Dorothea Puente. Investigators learned that Puente had two siblings living in the Los Angeles area, so a be-on-the-lookout was transmitted to police departments in Southern California. Leads came in from all over, some as far away as Mexico and Canada. Puente got off the bus in downtown L.A. and took a room at the Royal Viking Motel, a $40 per night lodging. She paid cash. For the next three days, she only left the room for a few minutes each day to walk to a nearby deli for food and beer. But on the fourth day, Puente grew restless. She carefully applied her makeup, dolled herself up in a dress, pantyhose, and the purple high heels she had worn to flee her murder house, and walked to a nearby neighborhood bar called the Monte Carlo. As Dorothea sipped her vodka and orange juice, she struck up a conversation with 59-year-old Charles Wilgus, introducing herself as Donna Johansson. She said she had been recently widowed and had just moved to Los Angeles. Since she arrived, she had been walking a lot, looking for a job and a place to live, she told him. She stretched out one leg towards Wilgus to show him how the heel of her purple pumps had been worn down. He told her there was a shoe repair shop just down the street that could fix her heel in a jiffy. He asked her to hand him her shoes and said he'd be right back. A few minutes later, he returned with the purple shoes, now sporting new heels. She thanked him by buying him a drink, and they continued talking for almost an hour. Wilgus later would say he was attracted to Donna and was flattered when she offered to cook Thanksgiving dinner for him. She began asking him personal questions after he said he was retired. She asked about his social security benefits, saying that she was pretty knowledgeable about that subject and could tell him if he was getting the full amount he was entitled to. Before the conversation ended, she was already suggesting that they move in together. Wilgus said that he chuckled and said he wasn't ready for anything like that, but he would like to see her again and had enjoyed her company. They made a date to go shopping the next day. Donna told him that her suitcase had been stolen out of a cab when she had arrived in the city. She invited him along to accompany her as she shopped for a new wardrobe. But on the way back to his apartment, he had the strange feeling that he'd seen the woman's face somewhere before. As he watched the evening news, he was reminded of why she was familiar. She looked like the woman who was on the run after multiple bodies were found buried in her backyard. But he wasn't certain. 
He didn't want to call the police on the woman and get her into trouble if he was mistaken. So instead, he called the Los Angeles news station KCBS. He was connected with news desk assignment editor Gene Silver. He told Silver his story, and Silver agreed to find a picture of the fugitive landlady, Dorothea Puente, and bring it to his apartment. He arrived just before the evening news. Will just thought that the woman in the photo was the same woman he'd met in the bar, but to be certain, he and Silver watched a video of Dorothea Puente that had been shot by news cameras the morning she disappeared and that was being played on the newscast. Now he said he was certain that he had made a date with a suspected serial killer. Silver called the police, directing them to the motel where Puente had told Wilgis she was staying. On the evening of November 17, 1988, police surrounded the Royal Viking Motel and arrested Dorothea Puente without incident. She had been on the run for just five days. Dorothea was taken into the Los Angeles Central Jail, where she was later met by officers from the Sacramento Police Department to be escorted back to Northern California. To expedite her transfer, officers accepted an offer from KCRA Channel 3 News to transport Puente on their private jet, since a crew from Channel 3 was being set to Sacramento to cover the story. Dorothea was put into handcuffs and escorted onto the plane, accompanied by Sacramento police officers, a Channel 3 reporter and camera person, and a photographer from the Sacramento Bee. On the flight back, Puente stayed mostly silent, except for one exchange with the reporter. Puente answered his question about the charges she was facing. She said, I have not killed anyone. The checks I cashed, yes. She paused and, looking almost wistful, stared out of the small airplane window. I used to be a very good person at one time, Dorothea commented before growing silent once again. Dorothea Puente was initially charged with one count of murder in the death of Alvaro Bert Montoya. Investigators were working to determine the identities of the multiple victims buried in her backyard and also opened investigations into other missing people connected to the Sacramento landlady, including the 1982 death of Puente's business partner and tenant, Ruth Monroe. Ruth's family never believed that her death had been as a result of a suicide, as investigators concluded. Now they hoped Dorothea Puente would be held responsible for drugging and murdering her, as they had long suspected. Investigators were also alerted to the 1985 disappearance of Everson Gilmuth, who'd met Puente after corresponding with her and then disappeared after moving to Sacramento and into her home. On December 28, 1988, Gilmuth, whose body had remained unidentified after being dumped in the Sacramento River almost two years earlier, was confirmed through dental x-rays. His cause of death could not be determined due to the passage of time and the state of decomposition when the body was found. In January 1989, the Department of Justice Crime Lab would use advanced equipment to analyze each of the seven bodies found buried on F Street. Traces of the sedative Dalmain would be found in all seven. Pharmacy records were found that showed Puente had filled dozens of prescriptions for the drug during the time her tenants went missing. On March 31, 1989, Dorothea pled not guilty to nine counts of murder. Pretrial hearings didn't begin until a year later, due to the number of victims and the complexities involved in conducting multiple investigations into Puente's alleged crimes. The prosecution presented evidence to the judge that Puente had forged over 60 benefits checks belonging to the victims after their deaths. 
On June 19, 1990, the judge ruled that Dorothea would stand trial on nine counts of murder. Although, due to the state of decomposition of the bodies, an exact cause of death could not be determined, the judge stated that there was, quote, ample circumstantial evidence that all nine deaths were caused by criminal means. Media outlets from all over the world converged on the city of Sacramento to report on an almost unheard of crime story, a female serial killer. The fact that the alleged murderer was also an elderly woman who buried her victims in her own garden made the story even more of a curiosity for the public. Through it all, Dorothea Puente remained silent, refusing interview requests by the dozens. Because of the intense media coverage, a change of venue was granted. The trial would be held three hours south in Monterey County. Even so, it took three months to impanel an impartial jury. The trial was finally scheduled to begin in early 1993, over four years after Puente's arrest. Just weeks before it was to commence, she rejected a plea deal from the prosecutor that would spare her from the death penalty. In order to be guaranteed life in prison instead of a death sentence, Puente would be required to plead guilty to all nine murders. She refused, still insisting that she was innocent of killing anyone. The murder trial finally began on February 9, 1993. The prosecution's case painted Dorothea Puente as a greedy, manipulative, cold-blooded killer. She had opened her doors to the most vulnerable for the sole purpose of committing murder for financial gain. The defendant, Prosecutor John O'Mara told the jury, quote, wanted people who had no relatives, no friends, no family. He called them shadow people who, when they're gone, won't have others coming around and asking questions. The state intended to seek the death penalty. Evidence presented at trial included information about Puente's lavish spending with the money stolen from her victims. At the time of her arrest, her closet was filled with silk dresses, and she had recently paid for a facelift. Puente was collecting over $5,000 per month in benefits in the names of her victims. In total, the profits she reaped from their deaths exceeded $87,000, or over $400,000 in today's dollars. The prosecution theorized that the victims had been given fatal overdoses of a powerful sedative. Evidence of the prescription drug Dalmain was found in each of the bodies unearthed from her backyard. She had attempted to get the drug by using one of the victim's veterans' ID cards, but had been unsuccessful. But a prescription for that drug, which had earlier been prescribed to Dorothy Miller, was found in Puente's room. Puente also received prescriptions for Dalmain from her psychiatrist and two other doctors. Former tenants at 1426 F Street took the stand and told the jury that Puente was always giving them medication they did not ask for. Carol Durning, who lived in the boarding house for several months in early 1987, testified that she'd overheard Puente tell one of the victims, James Gallup, that he would have to leave her home unless he gave her control of his money. She also claimed that Gallup told her the landlady was giving him drugs that made him sleep all the time. Donald Anthony, a resident at a local halfway house, testified that after Alvaro Montoyo's social worker began hounding Puente about his absence, the landlady paid him to place a call to Judy Moyes and pose as Montoya's brother-in-law. He was to tell the social worker that Montoya had gone to live with family out of state. But Anthony messed up the message and left his own name instead of the alleged brother-in-law's on the answering machine. This further prompted Moyes to report Montoya missing. Another former tenant who had lived in the boarding house for almost two years told the jury that he first met Puente while drinking in a local bar and she offered him some work. Puente paid him to dig a hole in order to plant an apricot tree, he said. 
she instructed him to dig the hole over four feet deep, which he thought was much too deep for a tree. It was only after the bodies were discovered buried in her backyard that he realized that she had tricked him into digging one of the graves. He also testified that Puente had repeatedly urged him to put his signature on a form would authorize her to sign his Social Security checks. He kept dodging these requests and never did sign the papers. He now wondered if he'd still be alive if he'd given in to her demands. Dorothea Puente's defense team claimed that all of her so-called victims had died of natural causes, and the only reason she didn't report the deaths was because she was afraid she'd be held responsible due to her past prison record. She also insisted she'd never poisoned or drugged anyone and had been falsely accused previously. In addition, her defense pointed out that the defendant realized that she could be sent back to prison if authorities found out she was renting rooms to others. This was in violation of her parole. Her attorneys tried to cast her in a positive light by telling the jury that nobody had cared for the people she took into her home. Only Dorothea Puente had cared that they had a safe place to live, food to eat, and somewhere where they were treated kindly. The defense called character witnesses to vouch for Dorothea Puente's charitable works over the years. A psychiatrist who'd spent several hours with her before her trial began told the jury that Dorothea Puente's early life was devoid of love and filled with abuse from her parents, caregivers, and husbands. He explained that the type of stress she had undergone early in her life had affected her decision-making and judgment. Those who knew Dorothea in her early life testified about the abuse her mother had put her and her siblings through and how Dorothea had been abandoned and then left an orphan after both of her parents' deaths. Her formative years were ones marked by instability, violence, poverty, and death, which led to her insufficient coping skills and contributed to her mental illness, the doctor said. Dorothea had been diagnosed with schizophrenia before being released from Frontera Prison in 1985, her defense pointed out. However, I don't think they included the warning the prison psychologist gave to the parole board before her release that year. Quote, Dorothea Puente is a disturbed woman who does not appear to have any remorse or regret for what she has done, he warned. She is to be considered dangerous, and her living environment and or employment should be closely monitored. Before the five-month trial wrapped up, the jury was transported to Sacramento to visit the crime scene. They walked through the house and stood in the yard that Dorothea Puente was being accused of turning into a graveyard, and even visited the neighborhood dive bars where prosecutors said Puente hunted for victims. After five months of testimony, 153 witnesses, and 3,500 pages of evidence, the trial finally came to a close, and the jury began its deliberation on July 15, 1993. On August 2nd, they sent word that they were deadlocked, with 11 jurors voting to convict and one holdout for acquittal. After providing additional instruction, the judge urged them to continue to try and reach a unanimous verdict. They finally returned a verdict on August 26th. Consensus was reached on only three of the nine charges. Dorothea Puente was found guilty of the second-degree murder of Leona Carpenter, murder in the first degree for Dorothy Miller, and murder in the first degree for Ben Fink. They also applied a finding of special circumstances for multiple murder. A mistrial was declared on the six other counts of murder, 
including that of Alvaro Bert Montoya, whose disappearance set the events in motion, which unmasked a serial killer. Dorothea Puente showed no emotion during the reading of the verdict. On December 11th, the judge sentenced her to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The jury had also deadlocked on sentencing her to death. She was remanded to the Central California Women's Prison in Chowchilla, California, to begin her life sentence. Dorothea Puente continued to maintain her innocence and prepared her appeal, certain that she would eventually be cleared of all charges and set free. Dorothea Puente continued to maintain her innocence and denied killing anyone or even knowing that bodies were buried in her backyard. She gave no interviews and spent years trying to appeal her conviction and sentence. Her final appeal went before the Supreme Court in 2008. It was rejected. The following year, now 80 years old and with no chance of ever leaving the prison walls alive, Dorothea gave an extensive interview for the first time. Martin Coos, a journalist for Sacktown Magazine, wrote to Puente on the 20th anniversary of the discovery of the crimes that put her behind bars forever. He was surprised that she wrote back, and even more surprised that she consented to an interview. He traveled to Chowchilla to meet the prisoner. He described Dorothea as petite but not frail, soft-spoken but self-assured. Two decades behind bars had not diminished her resolve. I'm not guilty, she stated firmly. About her accusers, she said, they don't have all the facts. They never talked to me. She described her life in prison. She was living with seven other cellmates in a dorm-like area of the prison. The cinder block room contained a metal locker for each inmate, a sink, and a shower. They slept in bunk beds. Dorothea had a bottom bunk due to her seniority and her age. There were two windows in the room. Only one offered a view of an interior hallway, but the other one looked out into the prison yard. Dorothea worked various jobs inside the prison until 2006, when she became physically unable to do so. She had worked as a janitor, gave haircuts, and did landscaping. Her only source of income after that time, she said, was $15 a month sent to her by a charity that she declined to name. She said she made sure to keep busy in order to pass the time and to be productive. Each morning when cellmates left for their prison jobs or to attend classes, she tidied up, made the beds, and generally kept the place orderly. In other words, she put her skills managing a boarding house to use again, just in a very different setting. She still loved to cook and found a way to create recipes from things she could buy at the prison canteen or order through the mail. She had use of a hot plate in her cell. She would share these meals with other prisoners. One of the dishes Dorothea made that was the most popular was her tamales. She cobbled together a decent version of the labor-intensive Mexican dish using canned chili and cheese for the filling. She placed them in bags and boiled them in water heated over the hot plate. She listed a variety of health issues she'd suffered as she aged behind bars, some requiring surgery. She'd had a tumor removed from one leg, angioplasty in 2003, and another surgery to have a ruptured artery repaired in 1998. Dorothea Puente still took care with her appearance. Her hair was snow white, and she still attempted to fashion it into waves, keeping it short and neat. She also still wore makeup most days, including eyeshadow and lipstick. She was popular with the other women prisoners who treated her with respect, greeting her when they passed her in the halls by addressing the senior as Miss Dorothea and Miss D. 
They all knew who she was and what she was accused of, Dorothea said. They also sought her out for advice with legal and personal matters. She continued to be a faithful church attendee, attending Catholic Mass regularly. She also spent time in daily prayer, reciting the rosary, and reading her Bible. During her free time, she said she liked to read novels and watch television. Her favorite authors were John Grisham and Dan Brown. As for her favorite types of shows to watch, you may or may not be surprised to learn that she loved crime procedure shows about solving murders. Her favorites were CSI, Criminal Minds, uh, Hello, Serial Killer Profiles, and Cold Case. Her interviewer asked if she wasn't guilty, how did her life come to this? How did she end up accused of serial murder with a life sentence? Dorothea answered, God always puts obstacles in people's way. Look at Job, John, Paul, Moses. Things happen for a reason, Dorothea explained. What was the reason she thought she was here, she was asked. To give other people strength, she answered. Asked if she ever heard from her surviving siblings or her two daughters, she answered, As far as they're concerned, I'm dead. Finally, asked what it was like to be called a serial killer, Dorothea fixed her pale blue eyes on her interviewer and said, I don't give a shit what anyone else thinks. Dorothea Puente died in prison in 2011 of natural causes. She was 82. The house at 1426 F Street has changed hands several times over the years, selling for as little as $155,000 in 2002 to as much as $560,000 in 2005. It has been renovated a couple of times, but still looks almost the same as when Dorothea Puente was living in it. In 2010, the house was sold for $215,000 at a public auction to a married couple, Barbara Holmes and Tom Williams. Neighbors in the area had long lamented the fact that their street had become a macabre tourist destination with people coming from all over to see and take pictures of a house where a serial killer lived and buried her victims in the tiny yard. But the new owners embraced their home's history and notoriety. They renovated the home, repainting its gingerbread trim blue and white, keeping its original color, but picking a shade of blue a little lighter and brighter. Some of the interior walls were removed for a more open and modern feel to the residents. After that, they decided to have a little fun with the whole true crime history of the house. Their shower curtain is printed with a crime scene tape pattern. They added a metal plaque to the front of the house that the curious couldn't help but notice. It reads, trespassers will be drugged and buried in the backyard. But Tom and Barbara went one step further and purchased a mannequin that they dressed in a red coat, gray wig, and positioned it holding a shovel in the yard. Dorothea Puente was famously photographed leaving her home on the day she fled, wearing a red coat, purple shoes, and carrying a pink umbrella. She was also wearing the red coat when she was arrested and returned to Sacramento. In 2013, they opened up their home for tours for one day only. Tickets cost $25 to $30 a piece to walk through the house and backyard where the infamous serial killer had lived. The owners said it was their hope that after visitors came through the house, they would no longer see it as a crime scene, although they knew it would always draw people curious about its history. In 2015, the house on F Street was the subject of a new documentary titled The House is Innocent. Directed by Nicholas Coles, it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival that year, and won the grand prize for Best Short Documentary at the Rhode Island International Film Festival. 
The film focuses on owners Tom Williams and Barbara Holmes and gives the audience an inside look at what it's like to live in a notorious house. It shows how Tom and Barbara have used humor to, quote, cleanse the home of its macabre past. The documentary's premiere in Sacramento in September of 2015 coincided with the house being opened up for tours for a second time. Proceeds from the home tour were donated to the Francis House Center, an organization that provides programs, services, and housing solutions for individuals and families to support ending homelessness. Barbara Holmes commenting about the home's notorious former resident said it was gratifying that, quote, now her house is being used for good, not for evil. That will do it for this extra-long episode of Once Upon a Crime. Why do I do this to myself? (laughs) But it was such an interesting case, and there was so much more to it than I originally anticipated. In fact, I still have a couple of funny-slash-weird stories to share connected to this case, as well as some details that I had to leave on the cutting room floor. I'll share those details on an episode available only to Patreon members. Some of the questions I'll answer, was the F Street house haunted? We'll find out what later residents had to say about spooky goings-on in the home. Also, what was the deal with the mannequin? Is it still there greeting people in front of the house? And what weird things happened to it over the years? Also, who owned the property when Dorothea lived there and used it as a murder house? What did he think once he found out what had gone on in his house? You'll get answers to these questions and other details by becoming a Patreon member for as little as $2 per month. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more and join. Would you like to get true crime trivia sent to you each week by text? You can receive texts from Once Upon a Crime by texting OUAC to 408-676-1770. That's the letters OUAC to 408-676-1770 to receive texts from Once Upon a Crime. Text messaging provided by Text Sanity. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. And original music and final sound mix is by Aaron Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.